sure you would agree with us that it's really, really interesting um, to pay attention to how our, how our society or how our culture speaks of itself. It's really quite a fascinating thing to listen to, to see how our society refers to itself. I'm sure you see what I mean. What are some of our country or our society's favored self-designations? How does our society speak of itself? You watch the media and you'll hear very often that we live in an inclusive society. You know that one. We've all heard that, an inclusive society, that especially in a week where there's going to be pride marches all over the world and, and our very city. Our culture likes to think that it's inclusive, likes to think that it excludes no one uh, or excludes anything. But there's other terms too. It's an inclusive society we live in, apparently. But we also live in a what's called a progressive society, which I don't know about you, but I always think is a bit of a ridiculous term. A progressive society as if this descent into immorality and lawlessness that we are witnessing all around us, as if that constitutes progress on any scale whatsoever. So it's an inclusive society that we live in. It is a progressive society we live in. But I think the most familiar term that we have is this. You'll all know this one. Our society likes to speak of itself as being a tolerant society. That has been, hasn't it, the favored self-designation for probably 10 years or more. Our country likes the idea that it is happy to permit anything Mark, what is happy to be tolerant of anything, no matter the biology, no matter the science, no matter the reason, no matter the fact, a tolerant society. Well, that is our culture. Here's the thought. What of us in here tonight? When it comes to the church, what does tolerance mean? What does tolerance look like for us? Are we also supposed to be accepting of everything? Is there bounds to tolerance in the church? And if so, where do we draw the line? Well, this evening, you may have noticed that we come now to the fourth of the seven letters in uh, Revelation. So we're in the middle letter, and it's a letter that's got a lot to say about how Christians should live and about holy living. What I think we're going to see primarily tonight is that Christ Jesus' idea of tolerance is the polar opposite of the society in which we live. And tonight, I think we are taught three things in this portion of Scripture. I really do. I think there are three foremost fundamental lessons before us. So I'm going to ask you, as I ask you, every single service, I'm going to ask you to make sure you've got your Bible there. In fact, if you can turn with me back to Revelation chapter 2, I'll give you the page number again, 1029. We're going to follow close to this text. Turn back there. As we consider the first lesson, ready for it, that the church must not be accepting of the wicked in her ranks. I know it's a long heading. That does not make for a long sermon necessarily. So do not worry, I'll give you it again. The church must not be accepting of the wicked in her ranks, in her midst. Okay. Right, 
what are we going to do? How, how are we going to start this? Where do we go? What do we need to do? Right, you know as well as I do. If we're, we're going to understand this, we first of all kind of have to get to grips with the original context, don't we? The original setting of this particular, this fourth letter. So this is how I want us to do it. Okay, you've got to follow me on this. I want us to hit two things as we try to get to grips with this letter. Two things in this first heading. First thing we've got to get to grips with is the town. So have a look. Where's this letter to? Do you notice where it is written? Not to Ephesus, but to Thyatira. So to keep you with me, Here's the pop quiz. What do we know about Thyatira? Where else is Thyatira mentioned in the Bible? Will I choose somebody? No, I wouldn't be so cruel as to do that. No, what what do we know? It is the hometown of Lydia. Think about Acts chapter 16. We know Lydia, don't we? The first convert in Macedonia. Remember the dealer in purple cloth, Lydia? Her hometown, Thyatira. Now, that's not just a pop quiz. That actually helps us. Because what we've got to appreciate is that Thyatira is not like any of the other cities that we visited. We've been on this whirlwind tour of all these towns in Asia. This is not, Thyatira is nothing like Ephesus or nothing like Pergamum, Smyrna, not at all. You've got to understand Thyatira was a kind of bog standard, you know, working class, working town, you know? It's got lots of merchants, lots of trade, people working in leather, people working with bronze, people working with purple cloth, of course. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that I mentioned that, get it, guilds were a huge part of life in the ancient world. Do you remember I mentioned that? Guilds. It's the kind of thing that we had in London, maybe still do. You know the sort of things that we're meaning? You know, each trade in London would have a guild set up, wouldn't it? And this guild would hold meetings and they would do charitable acts and they would build churches and so forth. Well, it's the same sort of thing in the ancient world. And you've got to understand this, that guilds were everything in Thyatira, in local life. But this is important, that unlike in London, where the guilds were established for charitable giving, in Thyatira, the guilds were all about sinful gain. And you need to listen to what I'm going to say next if you're going to understand this letter. That in Thyatira, each guild, each trade, was identified with a particular pagan god in Thyatira. And what the guilds were doing, individual guilds, what they would do is hold meetings. And they would sacrifice in these meetings to that particular pagan god. And guess what would happen towards the end of these meetings? Yeah, it would descend in all sorts of immorality and wickedness and sexual immorality. And it'd be horrific and disgusting, these pagan... Now, now, listen, crucial point as well, that the guilds in Thyatira demanded membership. See, if you were not a part of these guilds in Thyatira, then trying to do any sort of business in Thyatira was, was not just hard, but it was nigh on impossible. So do you get the atmosphere? Do you get the picture of the town in Thyatira? Lots of guilds with pagan immorality. Now, I said this. I said we would do two things, didn't I? I said we'd do two things to try and get to grips with the original context. So we've done the town... 
The second thing that you and I need to, to think about is the teacher. Because you must have noticed that there was mention of a particular woman in this portion of Scripture. Did you notice that? You did, right? Of course you did. Now, what we've got to appreciate is that there is scholarly dispute when it comes to this woman. So you have some people, some scholars, not all that many, I don't think, and they think that this woman represents or stands for a big group of false teachers in Thyatira. I suppose they're thinking that John here is doing what he does later on in Revelation. Do you remember when he talks about Babylon later on in Revelation, but he personifies Babylon as a harlot? Remember that in Revelation later on? So these scholars are kind of thinking that it's the same thing here. This woman stands for, represents this big group of maybe Nicolaitan false teachers in Thyatira. So that's one group. I'm not, I'm not buying that. I'm taking what is the bigger sort of majority position. And I think we do have one particular woman, one particular false teacher in view in this time. Either way, you must have got her name. Have a look if you didn't. Maybe the boys and girls can make sure that they get it as well. Do you see it in verse 20? Who is it? What's her name? Jezebel. And we all in here tonight. Now we can see why we had two readings earlier on. We all know why she's called Jezebel. Do we? Do you see what Jesus is doing here in this letter? He is drawing a link with First Kings 16. Oh, I hope everyone's getting this. Please get it. Please get it. You see the point? What's Jesus saying? Just as Jezebel in the Old Testament, as she lured people into sexual immorality for one reason, for material gain, do you now see what's happening in Thyatira? Do you? You've got one particularly influential woman Somebody who I think is claiming spiritual insight. You got that deep things of Satan comment, maybe. She's claiming spiritual insight. She's standing in a church, this woman. And she is enticing Christians to immorality. She's declaring that it's okay for some of the Christians in Thyatira to engage in sexual immorality. It's okay to engage in that pagan sacrifice out there. And you can see that it's a welcome message for these people. Why? Because it opens the door to material gain. It opens the door for Christians to join the guilds, to become members of the guilds in Thyatira. Now, we are at this point more than halfway through our sermon series. So I've, I've got a genuine question for you. What do you think of the letters in Revelation at this point, if you've been here for the sermon series? You find them fascinating, letters? I wonder, do you agree with your minister that these letters are incredibly relevant uh, to us? Well, maybe as we apply this situation here, what we could do, I think, is we could look at a parallel problem, a parallel temptation that we can face in London today. Do you see what that might be? that you and I might face the temptation to compromise with our society for material or financial gain. I wonder genuinely if that is a temptation that you face in here. 
You find that in the workplace, that in order to progress in your career ladder, or in order just to keep your job, you're facing pressure to compromise with our pagan society. Is that you? In order to keep your job or progress, to make some more money, there's a temptation for you to break the Lord's day into work on a Sunday. Is that a pressure that you face? The pressure to cut corners with legalities in the workplace in order to keep your job. The temptation, if you're going to advance, if you're going to make anything of your career, the temptation just to embrace the pagan culture of the workplace. Is that you? If it is, surely you see here what Christ says to you. He says, hold fast, stay strong, resist that pressure, resist that temptation. And we could, I believe me, we could linger on that forever, but I don't think it would be right to do that. I think there's something else here that's even more important than that. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Would you look at verse 20? Look at verse 20. Now, sometimes I'll stand up here, or Harrison will stand up here, and we will say in the sermon, remember I mentioned this a couple of weeks, we will say, this is the main point of the sermon. This is, this is what the sermon's all about, okay? Guess what we're going to do tonight? We're going to reverse that. I want you to tell me what the main point, the sermon, look at verse 20. Come on, look at it. What is the main point of this text? Do you see it? Verse 20, Jesus says, but I have this against you, says to the church. Okay, Jesus says to the church, I have this against you, what? That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Friends, what's the main point of this text tonight? What is the complaint that Jesus has? Is it just about the sexual morality? He condemns that, but is that? No. What's the main complaint? The main complaint is that the church is turning a blind eye to this. You see, there's a faction in the congregation, in Thyatira, engaging in public sin, fierce sin, overt sin, and the church is ignoring it. The church is turning a blind eye. The church is accepting it. The church is tolerating this. And because of that, I guess what we have to go in application is pretty clear. So I want you to hear this. Please, please don't make the mistake of thinking that we in here are just a group of individuals who happen to attend the same worship service. That's not this. If you're a member of the church, you need to understand that. We are not just a group of individuals who happen to attend this place. We have a corporate identity and, listen, we have a corporate responsibility. And so do you see where I'm going in the application? If there is public sin here, if there is wickedness, overt sin in the congregation, we have a responsibility to identify that, to address it, to weed out. Now, you might say to me, well, what does that look like? What do we do? Well, maybe, maybe we push and it's clear. We should be living openly with each other as a Christian community so that if there is sin, we can see it and identify it. Isn't that right? And don't you think we need to be asking more questions of each other if we think there is an issue of sin at hand? And most, most important of all, don't we need to speak to our elders if we think there is a problem? Don't we need to speak to them that public sin, overt sin, is dealt with well and properly and biblically? But you get it, don't you? you please tell me you get it. What was the first heading, the first lesson? The church... The church, what is it? The church must not be accepting of the wicked 
in our midst. Okay. Second lesson uh, is this. I will be slow with us if you're taking notes. I apologize for the length of the headings. Second of all, Christ will be admonishing the wicked in the church. Christ will be admonishing, punishing the wicked in the church. Uh, last week, I had a conversation after the service with me and a, a member, fellow member of the congregation, and we were talking about our frustrations. We were both moaning about how frustrating we find uh, the perception our society has of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus is portrayed in our society really irritates me. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, do you? How does society think about Jesus? Um, not to be too blunt about it, but society tends to portray Jesus as being a bit of a wuss. Isn't that the idea? A bit pathetic. You know, society thinks about Jesus, first century teacher, sort of wandering around in a sort of dress-like thing, bit effeminate. That's the way that our society, I was looking at the, I was looking at the pictures earlier on when I came into church. Maybe we can see why they have such an idea of Jesus when we look at these pictures that we have. There's a reason we have the commandments, isn't there? It really is. Now, isn't it interesting this evening in this portion of scripture to see how incorrect that idea about Jesus really is? Because did you notice what our Lord promises to do here? Right? We, society says he's effeminate and he is, he is weak and pathetic and here. The Lord Christ promises to enter into the church and to chastise and to discipline those who are wayward. Now, I want us just to linger for a moment on a couple of elements of this discipline, okay? So first of all, this is what I want you to do. Look at the start of the letter and notice the source of the discipline. Look at the start, verse 18. Now, everyone who's been here for this series knows how these letters begin. They begin with a part of the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. So what part of that vision do we have here? Do you notice it? Jesus is the one with, look at those words, eyes like flames. So our Lord is the one, read on, with feet like burnished bronze. What are you thinking right now? If you imagine that, are you thinking, oh, that sounds a bit feminine and a bit weak and a bit eyes like flames. I mean, that's scary stuff. I mean, that's an intimidating Lord God, isn't it? And, 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 and then read on or, or notice what else is said. Interestingly, in contrast to the culture in Thyatira that worshipped Apollos as the son of Zeus, do you notice what Jesus does to those in Thyatira? Do you see what he does? He quotes Psalm 2, uh, the picture of the divine ruler, and he declares himself to be, no, it's not Apollos. He declares himself to be the one and the only son of God. Friends, do you, do you see the message? In something that should make us quake in our boots, if we are engaged in public and overt sin just now, who is our Lord? Is he weak and pathetic? Listen to me. Your God is one with eyes to see your sin, and he is one with feet to stamp it out. 
And then you must also notice, if you're going to notice the source of the discipline, notice also the scope of the discipline. Because what do you think this triumphant, powerful God is going to do in discipline? What do you think he's going to do? Do you think he's going to go into Thyatira and give them a slap on the wrists? Do we think that Christ is going to come with his eyes burning as flame? And do we think he's going to give them lines or detention? Is that the sort of thing in discipline Christ is talking about? No, 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 no. You read verse 22. And surely you agree with me that it's a fearful thing to read. Because it's not just Jezebel, the false teacher. It's all who buy into her nonsense. Now please read it with me, verse 22. Christ says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. And then, and I will strike her children. Do we all understand? Of course, in view, there's the followers of Jezebel. We understand that, yeah. But I will strike her children, her followers. I will strike them dead. Isn't it fearful? I mean, do we not shake reading this? Christ here seems to be promising the most serious affliction for wayward Christians. People who are claiming to be the the children of, of God. It's a physical pain, he says, that will lead to death. That's the sort of chastisement we're warned of here. And then if we've got the source of it, and if we've got the scope of it, the last one to notice is the spirit of the discipline or chastisement. Because I, I know how this works. I know that I'm sitting in this room right now who really object to this. And I know there's some people here who, who think this is way too harsh. I mean, Christ Jesus is being unreasonable. How can you believe this? This is extreme. Punishing Christians for their waywardness and overt sin, addressing, disciplining them, even to death. This is, some of you say, this is madness. But I would love you to hear this. I would love you to see the goodness here and the grace. I wonder if you noticed it. Because not only in verses 21 and 22, Do you have the repetition of opportunity? Do you notice not once but twice Christ says, this will happen only if you do not repent. He gives them opportunity to turn away from the sexual immorality and pagan sacrifice, not once but twice. Not only do you have that, but what's the reason for all of this chastisement and discipline? Do do you see it in verse 23? Why is he doing this? It's as a warning to other Christians. This happens as a warning to us. This happens to a warning to, to other churches that people might look on and see, yes, Jezebel has been punished, that they might see the priority Christ has in holiness, that they might want to glorify God and that they might cease from their sin that they might seek to put it to death. So, simply in application, I guess, I have a a question for you. It's so obvious where we would go. Is this tonight a word to you, Christian friend? A word from God to you? Does this sit heavy in your heart? Please don't dismiss that question and knock it into touch. 
But is this from God to you? Is there overt sin in your life just now? Sin that you are not fighting. Sin you've not repented of. Is it serious sexual immorality? True waywardness. Then surely you see the message is to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because who is he? Who is he? He is not weak. He is not pathetic. He is mighty. He is strong. Yet... The greatest piece of news is before us as well, isn't it? He is mighty and strong, but by his cross and his sacrifice tonight, Christian friend, he is ready and willing to forgive. So third lesson is this. We see also that the people of God will be in authority over the wicked in the last. The people of God will be in authority over the wicked in the last. Now, at the start of this sermon series, I said to you that over the course of the next few weeks and so forth, that in our studies, you and I would be asked to assess lots of congregations in the ancient world. Remember I talked about that assessment at work that you would get from HR. And I said, that's what this sermon series is going to be. That we are going to assess lots of churches in the ancient world and look at the So, as we near the end here, as you look back in Thyatira, what is your assessment just now as you look on? Do you think about all of this that's going on here? It's a mess, would you say that? A bit of a nightmare situation for a church in Thyatira? Yeah? It's not all doom and gloom. You must have noticed in the reading that there's actually in Thyatira a faction of godly Christians, and they're not just godly, they're growing and maturing. So in verse 24, Jesus, from speaking to those engaged in morality, then speak to the rest of the church. So there's obviously a bigger faction who are good and godly, but also in verse 19, Christ says that they are increasing this faction in love, in faithfulness, increasing in Christian service. So when we've got that bit of information, surely doesn't come as a surprise to us to see how this letter ends. In fact, everyone who's been here for the sermon series knows exactly how this, how does the letter end, everyone? We know it. It ends with a promise from Christ to the Christian who endures, a promise from Christ to the Christian who conquers. So what is that promise? Well, it all really hinges on how we interpret those words in verse 28. So I'll give you a second to get those words in verse 28. Do you see it? Because you know as well as I do that that's not a straightforward expression. Do you see it in verse 28? The morning star. So what's that? There's all, you know, all, you can imagine, right? Lots of scholarly dispute and all these things about what on earth is the morning star? I think it's the context that's key. Because were you present in the church last Sunday night? How many of you were here? Probably most of you were here at church last Sunday night, were you? If so, do you remember that we mentioned Balaam and Balak? Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Well, in Numbers 24... In what was Balaam's last oracle? You remember Balaam tried to curse the people of God and God turned it around? In the last oracle, in what must have been a portion of Scripture ringing in the ears of the people in Thyatira, because you understand, do you, that these letters would have been read in each of these churches. So they've just had the letter from Pergamum read to them. 
They've just thought about Balaam and Balak. They've just had that mentioned. And in Balaam's last oracle, he speaks of a star. And then he speaks of a rising star. And it is a prophecy of a figure, an individual who would come in the future years. And crucially, it was one who would rule. Balaam speaks of a star, a rising star with a scepter in his hand. And now that you've got that information about this ruler, isn't what Christ Jesus says to Thyatira in verse 26 magnificent? Look at it. To these suffering Christians. Remember, they're materially impoverished. They are ostracized. What does Christ say to them? Do you see what he says to them? He says that one day they will have authority over the nations. I mean, isn't that amazing to these people who are struggling in Thyatira in this pagan society? What's Christ promising? He's saying it's going to change for you. He says the tables are going to turn for you. Christ says to them, one day you're going to rule and rule with a star. Rule with the Christ. And I think if we'd been there in Thyatira, that would have been so invigorating for us, fighting that immoral society. But come on, remember what we're dealing with. Seven letters. This ain't just for Thyatira. This is for you. This is a letter from Christ to you. So doesn't that, doesn't that reinforce your faith, your zeal? Just think about what's happening right now, tonight. What's happening? Right? Especially in a week where there will be pride marches in London. In a week where some of us will not want to take our children on public transport. There will be filth and immorality all around us. What does Christ do? He begins that week reminding you of what lies ahead. And he tells you here, one day it will all change, Christian friend. One day, though Tables will turn. One day the church will rise. And it will be seen to be vindicated. It will be seen to be victorious by all the eyes of the world. And why and how? All because of our Savior. All because of the cross. All because of our Christ. And all because of our bright morning star. One day we will rule with Jesus. So if there is overt public flagrant sin, let us not accept that anymore. Instead, let us tonight worship our God. Why? We praise him for his grace. We praise God for his good news. But do you know what? We tonight can praise God for his intolerance, his intolerance of sin. Let's bow and let's pray. Lord God, when we uh, consider iniquity, we tremble because we know by your revelation and your work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we know we are the worst of people. Lord God, we know that we are prone to self-righteousness. We are we're prone to all manner of sin. 
we ask, Lord God, that you would help us as a congregation to see the severity of sin, to seek to put it to death. Help the elders in this church to deal well with the chastisement and discipline of sin. But we thank you for what lies ahead, O oh God. You, in the end, will not be tolerant of wickedness and evil. And Lord God, we know that you will be just. We thank you that though we are wicked, you have provided a way that in the end, we will rule victorious with Christ Jesus. And so we do pray all of these things in his matchless name. Amen.